glad that you've come and hope you can come back and be with us again. I encourage you to get a Bible and let's turn to the book of Acts. We'll start in Acts 15 in just a moment. God's desire is for every local church to be strong. Not a person present would disagree with that, but let's establish that from these passages in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, this is on the heels of this discussion in Jerusalem concerning circumcision, having deduced from the teaching of the Holy Spirit what the truth was concerning circumcision, a letter is sent back to Antioch in verse 32 says, Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. God's intent was for that church and others that would receive the teaching of that message to be strong. Let's go to the 16th division of the same book, chapter 16, now and in verse 5. As they begin the second missionary journey, the apostles go back and revisit the churches that were established on the first missionary journey. And so the churches, verse 5 says, were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. So the idea of being strong was not so much numbers, because that was added in addition to them being strengthened. And so churches of Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Antioch were those who were strengthened. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. This has to do with Paul's desire for the church at Ephesus and what his prayer for them might be. And so in Ephesians 3 and in verse 16, his prayer is that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. God wanted them to be strengthened. Let's go one more time. Colossians 1 and in verse 11. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. And as he prays for the church at Colossae, his prayer was that they would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So here's our conclusion from that. If these seven churches, being four in chapter 16 of Acts, were to be strong, then we have to conclude God wants all churches to be strong. If God wants all churches to be strong, then God wants the church here to be strong. Uh, that is the church here at El Bethel or wherever it may be that you are a member. God wants that church to be strong. But implied in the fact that these passages talk about churches being strong or being strengthened, that it's possible for a church not to be strong. That is, it's possible for a church to be weak. So here's the picture here. Local churches we're talking about, local congregations, that they may be strong or they may be weak. If the passages argue for the fact these churches are to be strong, that suggests there's a possibility a church could be weak. That could be here. That could be a church where you're a member. That could be a church that you visit from time to time. But there are varying degrees within those categories. In other words, there could be varying degrees of strength. You could have a church that's really strong in some point and a church that's not as strong as that one, but it's not really weak. And then you have a church that's even weaker than that. And then when you get down to weak churches, you could have some that are just weak as water, but some that are just somewhat weak. Let's take some categories and discuss what we're talking about. Maybe doctrine. And whether or not they're teaching the doctrine as they should, are they teaching the whole counsel of God, and are they teaching it as effective as they should? And so you might have varying degrees on that. So you might have, for example, if we looked at it on a scale across here, you might have a church that fits into this category very, very strong, but you might have one just a little bit weaker in doctrine, 
They're not teaching any error, but they're not as strong as a church over here. Or you may have a church that's still strong somewhat, but not like this church over here. It's not weak like this one. But you might have varying degrees concerning doctrine. You might have the same thing with reference to leadership. You might have real strong leadership. Or it might be that you have very weak leadership or something in between. Or you might have the separation from the world. What problems worth worldliness? You might have a real strong church. You might have a real weak church. Or you might have some in varying degrees in between that we might talk about as we go further in our study. So here's some questions that need to be answered as we talk about strong churches. Just what is a strong church and what are the marks of a strong church? And why is a strong church so important anyway? Does it really make any difference about any of this? Does it make any difference where I attend? And suppose I move off to a new city and there are multiple churches, local churches there that are all churches of Christ and I decide I'm going to place membership with one of them. Does it make any difference which one? Do I need to do any investigation at all or do I just join with one of these churches that may be kind of weak and it really doesn't make any difference or one that's a little stronger? Does that make any difference? Make any difference which one of those churches I'm a part of? It doesn't make any difference about a strong church anyway. So let's talk about what we're actually discussing. Let's clarify what we're talking about. I'm not talking about denominationalism or even the progressive churches of Christ that have just gone to left field. And someone may say, yeah, I, I see what you're talking about. You, well, I want to be a part of a strong church. I don't want to be a part of a denominationalism. I don't want to be a part of institutionalism or those progressive churches that are just going further and further to the left. I don't want to be a part of that. You know what, even, that's not even on our radar in, in our discussion tonight. We're talking about non-institutional churches of Christ that some of them may be weak or they may be strong. And so let's talk about the value of a strong church. So three things we want to talk about on under the banner of a strong church. What does the Bible teach about a strong church? Let's start first with this. Let's talk about the need for a strong church. Is there really a need for, for looking for a strong church to identify with and to be a part of? Is there a need for that? What need is there for a strong church? Let's start with this. A strong church concerns itself with pleasing God and being of Christ. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. It's the most obvious place to start because the book of Ephesians is Paul's great essay on the church. It's what he said he was talking about in chapter 5 and verse 32. I speak concerning Christ and the church. Let's see what he says. Ephesians chapter 3, if you will. Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 21. What I'm learning from Ephesians 3, 21 is the purpose of the church is to give glory Unto God, Ephesians 3 and in verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, amen. So the purpose of the church is to give glory to God. The weaker the church is, it's not giving the glory to God that it should give. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 21, when a church is complete and a church is what it ought to be, when a church is mature, when it is... The kind of church that God would have it to be, then that church is said to be well-pleasing. Look at Hebrews 13 and in verse 21. God's prayer or the prayer of Paul would be, and the desire would be, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing. So when this church is doing what it should, when this group of Christians was banding together and functioning as God would have them to function, then that's well-pleasing unto God. So what difference does a strong church make? It has to do with concerning pleasing God and being of Christ. 
Now here's a couple of passages we need to pay attention to. 1 Corinthians 1 and in verse 10 speaks of the church of God which is at Corinth. Romans 16 talks about in verse 16 the churches of Christ salute you. And so a church that is of God, a church that is of Christ, means it belongs to Him. Two things are involved. One, it shows possession. It belongs to God. It belongs to Christ. That's true. But it also shows here is a church that is following God or following Christ. So what's the importance of a strong church and a church being strong and being a part of a strong church? That has to do with pleasing God and being a follower indeed of Christ. Here's a second thing. We're still talking about the need. It affects individual strength and weakness. A strong church or a weak church has everything to do with affecting the individual's strength or weakness. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a very familiar text to us. There was weakness in the church at Corinth. What was the weakness? Well, the weakness was they had a fornicator in their midst. That's weak enough. But that could have been a strong church where they have one fall through the cracks and he, he is uh, in his weak moment and he's committing the sin of fornication. But the real weakness was not so much the fornication there, but it was their toleration of the fornication there. They had done nothing about that. So in chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, he said, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, such as not even named among the Gentiles, and you're puffed up, verse 2, and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed should be taken away from among you. In other words, you've done nothing about it. You've not exercised a thing about it. Now notice at verse 6 that others were being affected by that. Look at verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So here the weakness in the church at Corinth was affecting individual strength or individual weakness. Let's go to Acts chapter 20 now. Paul warned about weakness in doctrine this time. That was weakness in practice in chapter 5. But let's go to Acts chapter 20. Paul warned about weakness in doctrine could easily lead to some being led astray. Paul addresses the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Verses 29 and 30, he said, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some are going to come in teaching things they shouldn't. Look at verse 30. Also among your own selves will men arise, speaking perverse things, and draw away disciples after them. When there is perversion being advocated, perversion being taught, disciples are going to be drawn away. That's affecting individual strength or individual weakness. Now here's how that affects us. Preaching, for example, that says very little, may not teach error, but let's suppose you have a church where the preaching says very little. When you get through, it's just more fluff than it has to do with Scripture. It has more to do with making you feel good than teaching you what the book of God has to say. When that's the case, the faith gets weaker in time. Maybe not at first, but in time, a diet of that's going to make their faith become weaker. So here is a weakness in a church that strengthens or has to do with individual strength or weakness. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 6. Here's how it affects us. When others see something going on that is contrary to the will of God and it's being tolerated, then that encourages others to think that is okay. So here was the fornication there. Nothing's being done. That makes others think, you know what, there's really nothing wrong with fornication. If I want to do the same thing, nothing will be said or done to me because nothing was said or done to him. That was the point of 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 6. In some cases, young people are growing up and they've never heard anything about denominationalism. Maybe teaching is not being done as it should. And so you picture someone who reaches now the age of accountability 
where they can understand and hear the Word of God, and for the next 10 years, say, they've heard nothing about what's wrong with denominationalism. They've heard nothing much about Bible authority. They've heard a lot of encouragement, how to, how to get along with your neighbor. They've heard a lot of teaching about how to love your neighbor. They've heard a lot about uh, how we, God's grace takes care of our problems. That's great and good. But they've heard nothing about Bible authority. They've heard nothing about some of the issues that divide churches. They've heard nothing much about divorce and remarriage. They've heard nothing much about worldliness. That's going to affect the individual's strength and weakness. In some of those churches, there's emphasis given to the social versus that which is indeed spiritual. Now, when one stays with one of those churches for a while, in just a short time, they become weaker. You, if, if you've been around the block or two, you, you're well aware of that. You've known of someone who is identified with a church where things are weaker. And you've seen them as they go on in time, they're getting weaker and they're getting weaker and they're getting weaker as time goes on. Here's the third thing. We're still developing the concept of the need. What's the need for strong churches? Weak churches are breeding ground for error. Let's go back to Acts 20 in verse 30 again. Paul warned about that. That if these elders didn't take heed, if they didn't take heed, back up to verse 28 now before we get to verse 30. He said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. He's giving, and we often quote verse 28 talking about here's the work of elders. They're to oversee the flock of God. But notice what he's saying to these elders. This is your job, so consequently, he said, take heed to yourselves and take heed to the flock. Pay attention to what's going on. Take the, pay attention to where this is going. Pay attention to where things will lead. And then he warns about doctrinal error. So notice what he says, after this, my, after my departure, savage woods will come in. Now verse 30, among your own selves will men arise speaking perverse things and draw away disciples after them. If you don't take heed, that's a weakness in the church. And consequently, that's a breeding ground for error. And let's go to 2 Peter. Now, Peter warned about this in 2 Peter chapter, chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. What Peter warned about is a lack of knowledge makes it easy to lead astray. So the more we teach of the Word, the more we teach the text in its context, that insulates against apostasy. Sometimes we wonder, why is it so important to understand what this passage is saying in context with the book and how this verse fits in context with the chapter? That's an insulation against apostasy. We'll see that at verse 18 in a moment. But notice verse 16 and 17. The lack of understanding is a breeding ground for error. How so? Well, Paul, Peter talks about, Paul wrote some things that are hard to be understood, which some who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of the Scriptures. So even some who are teachers are untaught and they're twisting and perverting the scriptures, he says. What's the danger of that? Look at verse 17. Are you reading with me? You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. How do I know? How do I know that it's a lack of knowledge that made them easy targets for apostasy? Look at verse 18. Knowledge is what strengthens and prevents that. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. That's the answer to the problem. Understand the text in its context, and then you know when error indeed is being taught. Now, elders are to watch and refute error. That's part of their job. That's part, it's not just making decisions. But Titus 1 and in verse 9, they are to watch for the souls. But one of the things that they are to do, Titus 1 and in verse 9, 
This has to do with the context of Titus 1 of guarding and protecting sound faith. Notice Titus chapter 1 and in verse 9. Paul says to Titus, Holding fast the faithful word, speaking of the work of elders, as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayer. That is, elders have the job to watch and to refute error. If they're not strong, then indeed that's a breeding ground. So a tolerant spirit makes a breeding ground indeed for error to be spread. Here's the fourth thing. We're still developing the need. Why do we need a strong church? Why is it important that this church be strong or any church be strong? Because weak churches are fertile soil for worldliness. Weak churches are fertile soil for worldliness. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There is strength to be found when we are separate from the world. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 14. He says in verse 14, Be not unequally yoked together with the unbelievers. In other words, join together and hook together and pull in the same load of sin as the unbeliever. In other words, the pagan. The unbeliever, the one who is, a, who is wicked, don't pull in the same, don't participate in sin like they do. That's the point. So what do you do? Look at chapter 7 and in verse, or chapter verse 17. I mean, uh, chapter 6 and verse 17. Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Separate yourself from the world. There's strength in doing what the Lord said. Chapter 7 and verse 1. Cleanse yourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now let's go back in principle, at least if you don't turn there, to 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 6. Being soft on worldliness means you're going to have more of it. That was Paul's point. That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So when a church is soft and weak, it's going to have more and more going to the prom, going to have more and more immodesty, more and more unfit movies, more and more social drinking. Churches where that is not being dealt with, it's rampant. Churches where it's hardly being dealt with, they have more problems than when you have a church where it is being dealt with. So what I'm suggesting to you is the need for a strong church is weak churches are fertile soil for worldliness. Let's go again. Here's another reason. Still developing the idea of the need. Weak churches are problems waiting to happen. Why does there need to be a strong church? Because weak churches are problems waiting to happen. How so? Well, let's list some of the problems that could happen. Corinth Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, we've mentioned that several times already, was going further than they wanted to go. So how do you know? We'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They had a fornicator in their midst. There is no indication in 1 Corinthians 5 that they approved of that, but that they tolerated it. No indication they wanted more fornication in their midst. That they wanted to see it not just one fornicator, but they'd like to see two, maybe three, maybe four. Five would even be better if we have five fornicators or ten fornicators. No indication of that. But he warns in verse 6 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, he is implying you don't want the whole lump to be leavened. I know you don't want the whole lump to be leavened. So if you tolerate this, there's going to be more. So weak churches are problems waiting to happen. Corinth was going further than they wanted to go. They didn't want to go that far. It creates a soft setting. In what sense? Tolerance by softer preaching. Tolerance by lack of discipline. Tolerance by weak leadership creates a soft setting 
for problems that indeed are waiting to happen. The end result is we have problems that we don't want. Like what? Well, we're going to be made up of weaker members. The softer a church is, they're going to accept more and more people. Let's go to Acts chapter 9 for, for a moment. In Acts chapter 9, do you remember the church at Jerusalem when, when Paul wanted to identify with the church there? Look at verse 26. He came to Jerusalem and he sought to join or to associate the New American Standards. In other words, he's going, as we would say, place membership, but he wants to identify with that church. He wants to identify with the church there at Jerusalem. The church would not accept him at first because they were afraid of him because they did not believe he was a disciple. They'd understood about his reputation, obviously. But Barnabas, whom they had confidence, verse 27, brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had spoken to him, and he preached boldly in Damascus. So, look at verse 28. He was with the church at Jerusalem coming in and going out. In other words, he was associating with the church there. They identified and they accepted him. But the point is that if they didn't practice that principle, they'll accept anyone on any basis, and that problem's indeed waiting to happen. When that takes place, and strong preaching is ever coming about, there's going to be an uprising. That's happened in time and time again. There will be teaching that will be eventually done that the church doesn't want. It may even be shocking. The more tolerant a church becomes, for example, let's take the church at Corinth. As they tolerate this principle of fornication, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. It's going further than you want it to go. As that's being tolerated, next thing you know, someone is going to be advocating, like chapter 6 may indicate, that fornication is okay. And there may be doctrines being taught that may even be shocking because of the toleration thereof. And they're finally going to be seeing sins that you can't do much about. How so? Well, let's take the case at Corinth. If a man can continue in fornication, nothing is done. Then another person could commit fornication and nothing be done. And then one could engage in homosexuality. What's the difference in that and any other form of fornication? And nothing will be done. And you'll start seeing sins within the church that you can't do anything about because we didn't do anything about this other one. We didn't do anything about the other. Weak churches are problems waiting to happen. Now let's talk about the marks of a strong church. What can I look for if I'm looking for a church and I'm moving to a new city? I'm going somewhere and I want to identify with a strong church. I have a choice of maybe five or six churches or maybe ten churches. How, how do I identify what is a strong church? How do I know this is a strong church? We'll start with this. That the preaching of the word indeed is distinctive. Distinctive preaching. Where the church endorses, and it's not just what the preacher does, but it's what the church tolerates, what the elders demand. There's the preaching of the word, and there's preaching of all of the word. Let's look at two or three passages. 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. I'm looking for a church where the oracles of God are preached. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. There is to be sound teaching, sound doctrine that cannot, sound speech rather, that cannot be condemned, Titus 2 and in verse 8. Paul said that he told the church at Ephesus, told the elders at Ephesus, that he had not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. In other words, he had not shunned back to hold back any, I mean, he had not held back any part of it. In other words, he didn't preach on one aspect of the truth, but then neglected to preach on this aspect. Maybe teach on doctrine, but failed to teach on worldliness. 
He didn't teach on worldliness, but didn't teach on doctrine. He didn't teach on family, but did not teach on something else. He taught the whole counsel of God. In other words, distinctive preaching is that which addresses the needs as 1 Corinthians does. You say, what do you mean 1 Corinthians? Well, there was problems at Corinth. There was division. What did 1 Corinthians do? It addressed division because that was a problem. He didn't back away from it because I don't want to hit that head on because there's division, but he hit it head on. There was division. He addressed that. What else was going on at Corinth? Well, there was litigation that was a problem. He addressed that in chapter 6. There was fornication. He addressed that. A lack of a discipline. He addresses that. There was abuse of the Lord's Supper. He addresses that. There was confusion over spiritual gifts. He addresses that. In other words, here was teaching that was directed to the church that addressed its needs. That's distinctive preaching. Soft preaching is hard to identify. How so? It is not what one says that makes teaching soft. It is what one is not saying that makes them soft. Stop and think about that for a moment. Sometimes someone says, what about this preacher? Why don't we have him for a meeting? Well, the elder's not really keen on that because we think that's a softer message. What do you mean he's soft? I've heard him preach and he didn't teach any error. It's not what they teach that makes it soft. It's what they may not be teaching. It's what they never get around to teaching on. I'm looking for a church that has distinctive preaching. The kind of preaching that a church has or tolerates says a lot about the elders and says a lot about the members. And so you have a church where things are softer and they never deal with divorce and remarriage. They never deal with worldliness. That says a whole lot about the membership. It says a whole lot about that leadership. It says a whole lot about that church. That's a mark of a strong church. Do they have distinctive preaching? Here's another mark. Strong leadership and a strong eldership. Let's go to Titus chapter 1. We indicated we'd come back to that. Titus chapter 1. What's the point of Titus? The point of Titus has to do with being sound in the faith. How do I know? Well, he mentions it several times. He talks about being sound. Sound doctrine, Titus 1 and in verse 9, he talks about sound in the faith. Titus 1, 13. Sound doctrine, 2 and 1, 2 and 2, and 2 and 8. He talks about soundness all throughout. In the context of being sound, he talks about the qualifications of elders. What's the point? Elders are put in place, the point is, to guard and protect sound faith. Look at verse 13. There comes a time where they must rebuke sharply that some may be sound in the faith. So elders are to guard and protect sound faith. That's the point of Titus chapter 1. They are to watch for souls, Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 17. Now, I'm not going to go back and read Acts chapter 20. But Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus, you need to see dangers that are coming down the pike. You need to be well aware that coming down this pike has some dangers. Among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Pastors, that's elders, that's not preachers. Pastors are for, Ephesians 4 and verse 11 that God placed pastors for the maturing of the church, according to chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. So how does the leadership of the church, how do the elders of the church contribute to its strength? Well, they're going to demand that truth be taught, but not only taught, but it's going to be followed. They're going to stand behind the truth that's taught. Not only allow it and tolerate it to be taught, but they're going to act upon it. And they're not going to be the kind that stick their finger to the wind to see which way the wind's blowing so they decide this is the direction we're going to go. Strong leadership demands that truth be taught and they act upon it. Here's another mark of a strong church. Faithful 
and committed and godly members. So you can have strong preaching, you could have strong leadership, but you could have a weakness in the membership. A strong church is where you have godly, dedicated, and committed members of the body of Christ. You can tell a lot about a church by looking at the members that are somewhat. You obviously recognize that's a statement taken from the King James rendering of Galatians 2 and 6. There were those who were somewhat among the brethren, those that were esteemed among the brethren, those who were held in, in prominence among brethren. Those that are held in prominence, those who are used in Bible classes, those that become the heart and the core of a local church, you can tell a lot about a church by those that are regarded as someone in the church, someone who is influential. Those that are regarded as members and used should be faithful. Revelation 2 and in verse 10, be thou faithful unto death and I'll give thee a crown of life. There ought to be those who are dedicated, give their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, Romans chapter 2. There ought to be those that not only profess, but they act upon godliness, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 9, and their family relationships are in harmony with what we read in Ephesians chapter 5, where the husband is the leader, the wife is submissive. They love their children and they rear them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But let's go further. Talking about marks of a strong church. Mark of a strong church is where discipline is practiced. I cite again 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That was a weakness at Corinth. But one of their strength was, chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, they came around and practiced what they'd been neglecting and brought him to repentance. So that's a mark of a strong church. You want to notice a mark of a weak church? I was once a member of a church where they had not practiced discipline in 30 years. In 30 years, they had not withdrawn from anybody. They couldn't remember in 30 years it was the last time they'd withdrawn from anyone. Were there problems? You bet there were problems. <laughs> was there sin in the church? You bet there was a lot of sin in the church. Was there corruption? There was a lot of corruption in the church because we hadn't practiced discipline in 30 years. A mark of a strong church is when they practice discipline. The Corinthians had a problem. Thessalonians had a problem that had to be addressed. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and said, you've got some among you that are not working. They're lazy. They're busybodies. Withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly. Warn those who are unruly. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, same word for disorderly. Warn them. Discipline indeed is practice. When that's not done, the church is asking for problems. Again, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But here's another mark. Of a strong church, they take a stand. They take a stand against sin and against worldliness. Now what do we mean by taking a stand? They teach upon it, they have a position upon that, and they deal with that. Let's talk about worldliness. For example, like modesty. A strong church will take a stand on modesty. And they'll teach what the Lord taught in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, as a host of other passages. And not only teach on that, but they deal with the problem, they deal with the issue at hand. A church is weak when they'll teach on that, but then they don't put any teeth into what they're teaching. They'll teach on modesty. They'll teach on things like the dance and the prom because that's a violation of lasciviousness, Galatians chapter 5. Not only teach on that and tolerate the teaching, but they'll put some teeth in what they're talking about. They'll teach against social drinking, 1 Peter 4 and verse 3, about what's wrong with social drinking. And not only teach on that and tolerate teaching, they'll also put some teeth into what they're talking about. That is a mark of a strong church. Here's another mark. We're looking at marks of a strong church. What am I looking for? I'm looking for a church that takes a stand on current issues. Now, can you imagine the church at Antioch? Let's go back to the first century. 
Can you imagine the church at Antioch? The church at Colossae, the church at Corinth, not taking a stand on circumcision. That was a big issue with Judaizing teachers. Is circumcision binding or not? Judaizing teachers were sweeping across trying to tell people, go back under the law. And here were the apostles defending the truth. Can you imagine the church at Antioch, the church at Colossae, the church at Corinth saying, we're, we're not even going to deal with circumcision. That's not, we're not even going to get into that issue. Or can you imagine one of those churches using men that taught error on circumcision? Can you imagine Antioch or Colossae or Corinth, for example, saying that's not really a big issue. It doesn't matter either way about this circumcision. If a man teaches it one way or teaches it another, we'll use him either way. It doesn't make any difference. We're not going to take a stand on that. And yet that's exactly the position that some brethren are taking on current issues of the day, whether it be on divorce and remarriage, uh, whether it be on uh, the AD 70 doctrine or a host of other issues. It really doesn't matter either way. They can teach it one way or the other. We'll use men on both sides of that. And so they'll use preachers and they see no danger. We ought to be more bothered. But those who don't know or don't seem to care about what those issues may be. Now let's close by looking at this. Let's talk about looking for a strong church. I've seen the need for a strong church, the marks of a strong church. Let's talk about looking for a strong church. Let's just suppose we're moving to a new area. And I want to be a part of a strong church. How do I go about looking for a strong church? I want to mention two things. The wrong approach, and in light of what we've been talking about, what would be the wise approach? The wrong approach would be looking for a church that just happens to be close. I'm looking for a church based on location. Here's a church within a mile of us here, or two miles, or three miles. And I identify with that church because of the close proximity without answer, asking any questions about where they stand, what they deal with, their leadership, what they teach, how they're going to address various questions. That's the wrong approach, obviously. Looking for a strong church, I look for a church where uh, the people there are people that I know or that are like. And I haven't asked a question yet about where they stand. I haven't asked a thing about what they do, how they're going to deal. Do they practice discipline? What do they teach? Where do they stand? What are they going to do if this situation arises? Who would they accept or reject? I like some of the people there, they're friends, and that's the basis. Another wrong approach is people are friendly. You go and you visit, and the people are, are friendly. Do you know people are friendly in denominationalism as well? People are friendly in some of the cults as well. That's not a basis on which to say, I want to be a part of that. People need to be friendly. The Bible talks about being kind, but that's a wrong approach. So what is the wise approach? Based on the passages we've cited, we don't need to cite any more to establish the point. I need to raise a question is this church that I want to be a part of, is this a strong church? Does it have the marks and the characteristics of a strong church? Am I seeing characteristics there? Does it have those strengths in their teaching? Does, do they deal with sin and with error? If error were to arise in this church, will they address that or are they going to just let it sweep it under the rug and let it slide? Are they going to deal with it? They're going to address it. Are they going to be those that deal with uh, sin if it arises? What if, what if one of the members rises up and, and becomes a fornicator like Corinth? Are they going to deal with that? Are they going to address that? I want to know. And furthermore, do they practice discipline? I want to ask the elders, do y'all practice withdrawing? Do y'all ever withdraw from people who become unfaithful? Do you do that? Do you do what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about? How do y'all deal with that? Would they accept anyone without question? 
Some churches have the concept that someone who walks through the door, that's their statement of repentance, and so we accept them. No matter what their circumstance may be, is that the basis on which we accept them, or do we ask questions? Do you elders ask questions? I'd want to ask that. And here's the very important question. If I'm a part of this church for the next 10 years, if I settle in for the next five years, 10 years, whatever it may be, when that period is over, am I going to be stronger because I'm here? Am I going to be weaker because I'm here? Is this leadership, is this teaching program, is this discipline or lack thereof, is it going to make me a stronger Christian because I'm here? Or am I going to be weaker when this is all over and when all the dust is set, am I going to be weaker? Well, that's what the Bible teaches about a strong church, the need for a church, some marks of a strong church, and then looking for a strong church. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sin? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?